Good morning. That's, that's better. Uh, we just began a teaching series a few weeks ago called Marks of a Healthy Church. And um, with the help of some great materials from Nine Marks, we are just seeking to better understand for ourselves what it is that makes a church healthy, according to the Bible, by the way, not our own opinions. What does God want his church to look like and do? What does he want the church's priorities to be? What does he say that her mission is? And the goal here, I hope, is obvious. Do you long to be part of a healthy church? I do. I long for this church to be healthy and strong by God's standards, not by our own standards, right? And so, if we are, we can be a willing tool in the hands of God in our community to bring Him glory. In other words, we're not studying these marks just so we can get smarter or pass some written test or just gain some head knowledge about what makes churches healthy. We do hope to gain knowledge. That's where it has to start, but that's not where it stops, right? We should, each of us, strive to put these things into practice in the life of Jackson Bible Church. That is the goal. And so, as we see these marks presented to us, we should be seeking and striving toward them. And there might be areas where we're doing pretty well. But I bet there are areas where we have plenty of room to grow, right? So this is a step for our spiritual growth. First, learning what the marks of a healthy church are and then taking actual steps in that direction. So with that introduction, we are currently on the second mark of a healthy church in our series. We first went over expository preaching. That's what Tim went over for several weeks. And now we're on biblical theology. And we've already gone over some things relating to this subject, like... What is biblical theology and why is it important? And we won't have time to go over or go back over all that, but I at least want to remind you of what the definition of biblical theology is, just to put it back in the forefront of your mind. So here is what pastors and teachers and, yes, members of the church should be doing. They will have a good grasp of biblical theology, which is a way of reading the Bible as one story by one divine author that culminates in who Jesus Christ is and what he has done so that every part of Scripture is understood in relation to him. Jesus said that the scriptures were all about him, right? And so we'd better read them and understand them in that way. So most recently, last week, we set out to answer this question. 
If the Bible really is one story by one divine author that culminates in who Jesus is and what he has done, well then, what is that big story? Can we at least summarize it? So that's what we set out to do last week. We began to do that, and we basically covered the Old Testament last week. And we did it like the authors of our book do in that, in that book, Biblical Theology, with these bullet points that kind of become little mental hangers as we make our way through the big, grand, glorious story. The Bible, as we said last week, is the story of the king, God the king who has existed eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is his story. And so the ten section headings that we used last week were all in relation to him, the king. Here's what we covered last time, just quickly. The king creates and covenants. The king curses. The king judges. The king blesses. The king rescues, the king commands, the king leads, the king rules, the king casts out, and the king promises. That was the ten headings we covered last week. And we kept seeing this reoccurring theme last week. We kept seeing over and over again the failure of man and the faithfulness of the king, didn't we? At every point, man was not faithful to the king. And yet, even in the midst of the king judging his sinful people for not being faithful to him, he keeps giving them hope over and over and over again. He kept promising to send them a deliverer. A person who would finally deal with the core issue that has plagued us since Genesis 3. Sin in the human heart. And he began promising this deliverer all the way back then in Genesis 3 after Adam and Eve sinned. God promised that although Satan would bruise the heel of this promised seed... The seed would indeed crush Satan's head. That's what the Lord said. And the prophets kept talking about this servant of God who was going to come and deliver God's people. And it says that he would enact a new covenant with them where he would write his law not on tablets of stone again, but on their hearts. And he promised that he would forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. And we read in Isaiah 49 where God spoke about this servant of his that was to come and how he was going to bring salvation, not just to the Jewish people, but to the entire earth. Let me read that to you again. It's a beautiful verse. Isaiah 49 and verse 6. This is God speaking about his servant. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. 
I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So at the end of the Old Testament, we are left with this great hope, this great promise. The hope of a promised Savior who would bring salvation to the very ends of the earth. And we kind of left our story at a cliffhanger last week. Between the Old and New Testaments, there are about 400 years of silence. No recorded prophet, no recorded word from the Lord, just silence. Would God really keep his promise? Well, as I said last week, the great silence was cosmically shattered. And what shattered the silence wasn't the sound of royal trumpets, as we might think. It wasn't the sound of battle drums or a marching army coming to take over. It wasn't the sound of fireworks or cannon fire. Instead, what pierced the years of silence was the cry of a baby in Bethlehem. And that's where we pick up our story today. Number 11. The king arrives. Finally, the long-awaited king arrives on planet Earth. And years... After years of darkness comes this wonderful light. John 1 says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And that same chapter tells us that the Word, who was in the beginning with God and who actually was God, became flesh and dwelt among us. He was God, but yet at the same time, He became a man. The infinite became an infant. And he fulfilled all the prophecies that God gave about him, including, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That was a prophecy of Isaiah. This was the most important person who has ever been born. This is the hero of the entire story, the centerpiece of the entire thing. The angel tells Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Wow. That is exactly what humanity needed all along, right? The Savior who would save them from their worst nightmare, their greatest problem, the problem of all problems, the sin that is in the human heart that corrupts everything. The Savior was finally here, and he was lying in a manger in a cattle stall in Bethlehem, the city of David. Jesus was the Messiah from Abraham's family. 
He would be that blessing that God promised to the world that would come from Abraham's family. Jesus was it. He was also from the line of Judah, as promised. Revelation refers to him as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He was also the king who would carry on David's dynasty that the, that the Lord promised David. Here he was, a huge moment in our story. And of course, at one of the greatest moments in the entire story of the king, you know that Satan, the villain of the story, wasn't just going to sit idle. He tries to stop Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry. But here's the glorious thing. Where Adam and Abraham and Moses and David and Solomon and all of Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. He obeyed God at every single point. Jesus truly demonstrated that he was, in the most perfect sense of the word, God's servant. And so Satan tries very early on to get him to fail by tempting him in that wilderness. But Jesus resists him by trusting in the word of God, his father. And Jesus begins to go around after that, preaching this message. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark 1.15. And Jesus goes around not only preaching, but actually demonstrating that God's kingdom was really here. He goes around healing sick people. He goes around casting out demons. He even raises people from the dead. So the effects of the fall, death, Sickness, demonic powers that are holding people captive. All these things, Jesus was reversing everywhere he went. It was like heaven was just traveling with him. The kingdom was here. And although these things that he was doing were sure signs that he was from God, he wasn't what people were expecting. They were expecting maybe some sort of military leader who would overthrow the Romans by some earthly means. But Jesus said explicitly at one point that his kingdom was not of this world. If it were, he said, his servants would have been fighting. And even his own people didn't receive him as what he was, the promised one. It says he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So, in the clearest possible display of human depravity in the history of the world, this perfect servant who was sent from the king to rescue mankind, the king's very own son was rejected and killed by sinful man. Instead of being honored and adored, 
He was hated. He was betrayed. He was slandered. And in the biggest gasp moment in the entire story, the long-awaited king that came to redeem his people is condemned to die by sinful men. Number 12. The king suffers and saves. So although this seemed like a terrible conflict in the story, almost threatening to end the whole thing, this was actually the very thing that God sent his son to earth to do. The prophets had promised that the servant of the Lord would save by suffering in the place of sinners. We read it last week in Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Isaiah 53, 5. And he cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is forsaken so that we would never be. I love what Paul Tripp says about that. He says, Jesus took every ounce of your rejection so that you would never again have to see the back of God's head. And so the sinless Savior dies on a Roman cross between two thieves treated as some common criminal whipped to a bloody pulp spit upon beaten a crown of thorns mockingly put on his head and he hangs there on that cross and gives his very life's blood to save a rebel race the blood of the king is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. He gives his life as a ransom for many. Philippians tells us in chapter 2, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2, 6 through 8. And everything in that sacrificial system that was given to God's people so many years before all pointed forward to this sacrifice. He was the perfect Passover lamb. John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, 29. And in this seeming tragedy, we have the greatest thing that has ever happened to mankind. He redeems a people out of slavery to sin. A second exodus, if you will. 
God the king proves his love for his people by dying in their place. In the person of Jesus. Not even death itself will stop him from doing this. Nothing will stop him from rescuing his people. Man may plot and scheme. The devil may try to stop him and disqualify him. The demons may rage. But our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases, right? And no one can say to him, what are you doing? Peter says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So even when man intends evil, God will have his way ultimately. And in another equally mind-blowing event, we read that after three days in the grave, Jesus rose again from the dead, just as he promised he would do. Death could not hold the author of life. He was too strong for death. And by rising from the grave, Jesus begins this work of the new creation that was promised way back in the Old Testament. He comes back to life and he proves that what he was doing and saying was so much more than just setting some good example for us to follow. Many dead people who are still dead set good examples, right? This defied mere humanity. No one comes back to life after being dead. Sounds very basic to say that, doesn't it? This is not a human work. This is God's work. And so by his resurrection, he proves that everything he taught and said and did was legitimately from God. He truly was and is the promised Messiah and Savior of the world. And he appears to his disciples after being rescued or after being resurrected. And what a meeting that must have been. Have you thought about that? You talk about a morale booster. They thought it was over. They had devoted three years of their lives living with this man who claimed to be the Messiah. And they saw him put on a cross and die. And they saw him get put in the grave three days before. Can you imagine what it must have been like to see him alive and well? Amazing. And he tells him to proclaim a message for him. And that message he told him to proclaim hasn't changed in 2,000 years. People are to believe in him and be saved. If you don't, you are condemned. And the risen king's message still resonates throughout all time and all places. Jew or Gentile, come to him and he will save you. He will give you rest. Which brings us to the next heading, number 13. The king sins. Sins. S-E-N-D-S. 
At the end of his time on earth, he gives his disciples and every disciple, even to this day, the following charge and commission. He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Jesus calls every disciple of his to go and make more disciples. To quote another person, following the king means helping others follow the king. Remember how we said that God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply way back at the beginning? He wanted them to just fill the earth because they were his image bearers. So by filling the earth with God's image, the whole earth and the heavens would see his glory, his dominion, his image. Well, that's what he tells his disciples to do in a spiritual sense. Go everywhere and proclaim my gospel to all people. And at that point in the story, Jesus leaves the earth. He's taken up to heaven because he finished what he came to do. And it says in Luke 24, And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Now Jesus had made it clear to them that before he left that he would be sending another person to them who would empower them to carry out the commission that he had given them. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, Acts 1.8. And he also made it clear to them while he was here that it was his will to establish these kingdom outposts. That's not his words, but that's a summary of what he taught. These kingdom outposts, these embassies of God's kingdom, churches who would have his authority behind them, according to Matthew 16 and 18. And so these apostles went forth, they obeyed Jesus, they preached his message, and the Holy Spirit empowered them to do so. For instance, Peter, the apostle who had cowardly denied Jesus on the night of his betrayal, Peter denies him three different times. Now he boldly preaches Christ on the day of Pentecost. And God saves 3,000 people. He was done denying Jesus. In the words of the songwriter who I love, Andrew Peterson, he had seen too much. Listen to that song sometime. 
He knew for a fact who Jesus was. He had seen too much. And he was now preaching his name boldly. He said, Peter did, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Acts 2. And just like Jesus had said, the gospel, his gospel, was unstoppable. The Holy Spirit did what only the Holy Spirit can do. He brings dead sinners alive and causes them to believe the message and put their trust in Jesus. Jesus told them and promised them that he would build his church. And that's exactly what was happening And what began there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost eventually spread out over the whole earth, not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. Praise God. Is there any Gentiles here? (laughs) Praise the Lord. He opened the door for us too. God was doing what he had promised Abraham way back in Genesis. He was blessing the entire earth Through Abraham's seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. So local churches were popping up everywhere where Christians were. And those churches sent out people to plant more churches. And even in the midst of this heavy persecution that they were going through in the early church, God saves a man named Saul who was himself a Jewish Pharisee and who was a heavy persecutor of Christians at the time. He saves him. And he transforms Saul into a trophy of grace and changes his name to Paul and sends him out as the greatest gospel missionary ever. Number 14. The king reigns. Now in the Old Testament, we had prophets who proclaimed to God's people how to live lives that were faithful to the king. In the New Testament, we have letters that are written to explain and apply what it looks like to live as God's people under the reign of King Jesus. The writers of the New Testament letters consistently apply this pattern. First, they unpack who King Jesus is and what he has done on behalf of undeserving sinners. And then they summon their readers to follow him and trust him and be obedient to him all for his glory. For instance, in Colossians, Paul begins by describing who Jesus is first. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, 
And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. That is who Jesus is. He is the sovereign creator and ruler over everything. And amazingly, he came not to wipe out humanity, but to save it by the blood of his cross, Colossians says. And he's the head of the church. He purchased the church with his own blood. And so what is to be the church's response to this? The same book, Colossians 2, 6 through 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, And established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And Paul spends the rest of that letter of Colossians unpacking what it means to follow Jesus. And to live for his glory, even in a world that is at enmity with God. Another thing we see throughout these New Testament letters is that we are living in an age... Of now and not yet. King Jesus is building the kingdom. It's here in the heart of his people. The kingdom of God is here now, but it is not yet completed or fully realized. And believers suffer now, don't they? But... They will be glorified when Jesus returns. And if you're listening to the story for the first time, yes, you heard me correctly. He's not done. He's coming back a second time. That is the great hope that the church has now. In the pastoral letter to Titus, Paul said, waiting for our blessed hope. What is it? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And these letters make it clear that the mission God gave His church would be very difficult. That's why I told them at the outset, I'm going to be with you. I will never leave you. I'll be with you to the very end of the age. He knew they'd need encouragement. He told them up front. It was going to be tough. And he also told them things like, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew 5, 10 to 12. And we read in 2 Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be 
persecuted. And so, what is the church to do in this age of now but not yet? In this age of suffering, they are, we are, to look to the Lord Jesus Christ and never stop looking. Keep on looking to him until he finally comes back to get us. Number 15. The king returns. Quoting the authors here. The story of scripture begins with God ruling and reigning as king over everything. And with a holy people who were to live for his praise. So it is fitting that the Bible ends with the promise of the risen and reigning Jesus returning, rescuing, judging, and making all things new, including a new people with whom God will once again be pleased to dwell. End quote. The last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, tells us how this epic story will end. And by the way, it's the book of Revelation, not Revelations, right? Because it's the revelation singular of, of a person. The person is Jesus himself when he comes the second time. And it's so gracious of this divine author, God himself, to tell us the end of the story. Because it actually shapes what it means to follow Jesus now. Because we know the end. It keeps us going. As the letter to Titus said, the end of the story, the revelation of Jesus Christ, is the great hope to which every Christian must look if we're going to persevere in this life living for the glory of God. And at the same time, a very solemn, serious reality is given to us in the book of Revelation. Really, it's given much before that, but it's in vivid uh, just so vivid in front of us there, that those who refuse to obey Christ's words, those who refuse to repent and believe on Him, will face absolutely horrific judgment. And it won't be more than they deserve. It won't be undeserving. It will actually be everything that sinful humanity has always deserved. 2 Thessalonians 1 mentions what will happen to the unrepentant at the time of Jesus' return. It says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. In other words, finally, 
all rebellion against King Jesus will be crushed. And even in judgment, the King will be glorified. And we finally see the great villain of the story, Satan, put where he belongs. He will be thrown into the lake of fire to be tormented day and night forever and ever, says Revelation 20, verse 10. The enemy will be totally and utterly crushed under King Jesus' feet. But the end of the story for the Christian is not one of judgment, praise God. It is one of great joy. Every single redeemed sinner from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be in heaven giving praise and adoration and honor to King Jesus, the Lion of Judah, the seed of Abraham, the son of David, the Messiah. And he will be, and he even now is, worthy to be praised. Why? John tells us in Revelation 5, verses 9 to 10, it says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus is worthy to be praised because he ransomed us by his blood for God. And the mercy and the grace that flows from him is what motivates us to take the good news to all the nations, right? And at the end of the story, not only do we see a redeemed people, but we see a brand new world even. Peter talked about it in his letter, 2 Peter three thirteen. but according to his promise, We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And John describes exactly that in the second to the last chapter of the Bible. Revelation 21, 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. God's good world, which had been stained by sin and death, will be made new. No more death. No more sickness. No more pain. No more tears. No more sorrow of any kind. No more corruption. No more injustice. No more hate. No more trouble. No more evil of any kind. And all of God's people will be in the direct presence of their good king forever. He will dwell with them. They will enjoy perfect, unhindered fellowship with him in a perfect world. 
and it will be exactly what they were made for. So the story of the Bible is the story of the king. It's the story of King Jesus ruling and reigning over the world that he made. And it's the story of his loving purposes to save a people who will delight in him forever for having redeemed them out of sin. And at the very end of the book, King Jesus, who has proven himself to be utterly faithful to keep all his promises, he promises this. Surely I am coming soon. And all true Christians everywhere say in response to that, Amen. Come soon, King Jesus. Now is that a good story or what? The best part is that it's a true story. And we're actually in it. The good king is our king. King Jesus has ransomed us. He's not talking about some fictional people. He's ransomed us. What music to our ears is the story of King Jesus and his goodness to us. So, as we read different parts of the Bible in our daily reading or as someone preaches, we must read it and understand it in light of where it falls in the great story. We must read it as the story of Jesus. Remember, it's all about Him. And so if we want to understand the author's intent, we must read it that way. That is biblical theology. So next time, we'll try to close out this section on biblical theology by looking at this. How does biblical theology shape the church's teaching? And how does it shape the church's mission? And we'll close there. Now let's just bow in prayer and thank our King for this wonderful story. Our Father... We are blown away by your grace and mercy toward us. To think that we were once your enemies on the road to receive your just judgment. And instead of crushing us, you rescued us. We didn't even know for a long time that we needed you. And yet you showed us. We didn't even know how glorious you were. And you revealed it to us. We were blind to see it. And you opened our eyes. We were deaf to hear your gospel at one time. And you opened our ears to hear. Your story, the sweeping story of your world and your glory revealed chiefly in your son is truly the greatest story ever told. And Lord, we pray that as we take this story to the nations, to the surrounding community, to our coworkers, to our family, to our friends, that you would move in power 
on their hearts as we share this wonderful story. Lord, bring dead sinners to life just like you did us. And Lord, help us to do this day in and day out until we finally get to see you face to face at your return. And Lord, just help us to become better biblical theologians. Help us to truly grasp what the big story is of the Bible. Keep us, protect us from trying to bust it up and morph it into little man-centered snippets. Help us to keep the Lord Jesus as the hero of the story. Perfect your church, Lord. Make us healthy as you help us grow in this area of our understanding. And in the name of Jesus, our great and good King. Amen.